Well, good morning. Glad to be up here this morning as we proclaim the Word of God. And today we will be in Amos chapter 8, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to say that uh, we live in an age of confusion. Uh, you just, all you have to do is turn on the television, you'll see it. Particularly right now, it's over coronavirus, COVID-19. You'll see that there's questions about where it came from, uh, conspiracy uh, theories and so forth. Some people saying it came out of a lab, others out of a cave, others out of a marketplace. You'll also see there's much confusion over what it does as scientists continue to catalog the effects of COVID-19. You also see confusion over how long it'll last and the effects of it. What will it do to businesses? And there's this idea that if we can just get past this age, this time of this pandemic, that it'll all work out, we'll all go back to normal, and there'll no longer be confusion. But that's not so. The confusion didn't begin with this pandemic, and it will not end with this pandemic. We've been in an age of confusion. We've long been in an age of confusion. For years, if not decades, we have been in an age of confusion. We see it in our churches. We see it especially in the churches that we might not claim to be true churches. The churches who have turned their back on the traditional faith and no longer preach the full counsel of God, but a selective and comfortable counsel, sub-counsel, if you will. Not the true counsel, not the full word. Not the true gospel, but only part of it. We see an age in which our churches are often left empty. The church is not popular in the modern world. And you see many churches that are very popular in the world. And it would make you wonder their doctrine. Because they seem so accepted by the world. When you see some of the largest churches in America featured by people like Oprah Winfrey, you have to question what they're preaching. And it just so happens that those are often the churches that say openly we will not preach on wrath or judgment or sin or anything that makes people uncomfortable. My friends, that is not the full counsel of God. And we reject that. We live in an age of confusion. Yes, moral confusion. We live in an age of dishonesty. We put a band-aid on it, don't we, and say, well, it's just a different kind of honesty. Because there is no absolute truth. There's your truth and my truth. I can't be dishonest if I'm speaking for my truth. And you can't judge my truth because you're not me. You're not in my perspective. And since you're not in my place of standing, then you have no right to judge whether or not what I say or believe is truth. Now, my friends, this is nonsense. To reject an objective standard of truth is nonsense. We know this, and it's led to every other failing we see in our own age, an age of immorality because of this. There is no longer right and wrong if there is not truth. Again, we don't call it immorality any longer because there is no immorality. All morality is situational, isn't it? You can't judge what I'm doing because you're not me and you're not in my situation. And besides, I don't think it's wrong, and therefore it can't be wrong. My friends, again, the Word of God rejects that and so do we as a church we reject the idea that there is some individual standard of morality the bible does not argue that this age rejects truth and moral clarity it rejects salvific exclusivity we see this in churches that make the argument that it's not only in christ there must be other ways i mentioned oprah again or a moment ago and Of course, she's famous for a clip in which she said, there cannot just be one way to God. And yet the scriptures 
declare there is only one way, and it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now we see ages like this in the Bible, in which the truth of God is rejected by a culture, a people, an age. And when we see that, what do we also see? Sure and sudden judgment. Now, that would bring some questions to our mind, wouldn't it? What is going to happen to us as a people? Will judgment fall on us? Is it already happening to us? And I don't mean COVID-19 here. I mean, maybe COVID-19 is a judgment of God. But I don't mean COVID-19. The judgments I'm speaking of are far more difficult to perceive. Are we already under the judgment of God? And what should the church's response to all of that be? I want to read our scripture one more time. It's found in Amos chapter 8. It's an important word of prophecy in the midst of a coming judgment upon the people of God. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son. And its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins. And strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The word of the Lord. Today, as we look at this text, I'm going to try to very quickly cover these three points. First of all, living in an age of confusion living in an age of confusion. Second of all, a judgment that is difficult to detect. And lastly, the church must remain steadfast in truth. 
So beginning first with the idea of living in an age of confusion, we need to remember that the word of the Lord, the word of God is a blessing to the people of God, a revelation of God, a light to us, a guide to us, the very oracles of God. What a blessing the word of God is. It represents an abiding truth, a certainty in an age of uncertainty. So what happens when a people lose interest in the very idea of truth? They reject completely the idea of truth. A generation that rejects absolutes and replaces it with the idea of individual ethics. The idea again that your truth varies from my truth. That your truth is not my truth and mine not yours. An age that is of poor discerning. Of no intellectual rigor although they believe that they have that very thing. An idea of an age of foolishness, if you will. Now, we've seen it in our own age, haven't we? Our own time, we've seen this. The rejection of a long-standing foundation of truth. Just taking that foundation of truth and dashing it to pieces upon a new foundation of moral and societal confusion. Now, we don't have to wonder who's behind such a plot. Our God is the God of truth. And He does not change. But we also know that the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies. He is behind all deceit. And so, my friends, if we are living in an age of confusion, we know who is at work. Satan is at work all around us to confuse. But we also know that our God is at work, superintending all those evil purposes for good. And, my friends, we need to focus on that, even as we talk about these difficult truths We're simply living in an age of confusion. We no longer know what truth is. We no longer know what's right. We no longer know what it takes to be in right standing before God. And we know ultimately our right standing is in Christ. But if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in Christ, we are called to live in a right way. And yet the world no longer knows what is right at all. The world no longer knows right from wrong. The world no longer knows what life is or how precious life is. In fact, we might argue the world has really never known just how precious life is. We live in an age where we hear people ask, when does life begin? What utter foolishness. The Bible tells us clearly, testifies clearly to when life begins. For God has knit us together in our mother's womb. Yet the world foolishly can't figure it out. We no longer know male from female. Who would have thought this level of foolishness would have befallen mankind? We no longer know how to recognize a male from a female. And by the way, this is the same crowd that will tell you over and over uh, that you're not to reject science, and yet something as simple scientifically as this, they reject. How can they not know how to tell a male from a female? There's so many different levels at which we can make this discernment, isn't there? So many levels. It was never hard for our parents' generation, never hard for our grandparents' generation, or any generation that came before to know the difference, and yet this generation struggles because something can trump science. Something can trump the empirical evidence. It's called feelings. It's called emotions. If I feel like I'm not a male, it doesn't matter what my biology says. It doesn't matter what science says. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to trivialize this. 
It seems as though it might be a trivial matter, but I'm not trying to trivialize it because it's a sign of great and present deception. It's a sign that we can no longer discern even the most basic truths as the basic matters of life and sex. Even those things are confounding to us in this generation. My friends, that sounds to me like the judgment of God falling upon man. Empirical and biological truths have been slayed upon the altar of personal feelings. This would have seemed unimaginable even a few decades ago. Even a few decades ago. I think that we can understand the troubles that the great prophet Isaiah referred to, to, referred to when he said that truth is fallen in the public square. He lived in an age of confusion. So did the prophet Jeremiah who spoke on behalf of the Lord when he said of the people of his own day, and like their bow, they have, been, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are no longer valiant for the truth on earth. They proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, saith the Lord. Jeremiah's people were much like our own, our own age in which we live. My friends, we need to recognize that this is foolishness. But it's not new. It is not new. People have always longed for a truth that is their own, that they get to define. It's at the heart, if you will, of idolatry. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that people have rejected the glory of God and have chased after idols. Now, why is that such a draw for mankind? I think Paul lays it out right there. If I create an idol... If I replace the glory of the God of creation with an object I have created, I define it. I define what the created idol wants and longs for. I get to create God in my image. We see that over and over, don't we? You may remember of a, an incident in uh, 1 Kings 22 where Ahab and Jehoshaphat are talking about going to war together. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn there. 1 Kings chapter 22. And so Jehoshaphat comes and, and, and meets with Ahab. And there's this interesting moment of, about will they go together and war against Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's call together the prophets and let's see what they have to say about it. And so the prophets are gathered and, of course, uh, they say exactly what Ahab would want to hear. Yes, go. The Lord will give it to you. The Lord will give it into your hands. Yet Jehoshaphat notices something unusual. All the prophets that have been gathered are not prophets of God. They're prophets of Israel. In other words, they are the prophets of the king Ahab. They're, they're his men telling him what he wants to hear. And so he asks this question in verse 7. Is there not a prophet of the Lord still here? Is there still not a prophet of God in this land that we can call to hear a word from the Lord? And Ahab says, well, yeah, there, there is. There is still a, a prophet. There's one man, one prophet left. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we might inquire of the Lord. But he didn't call him, did he? Why didn't he call him? Well, my friends, listen to this. He says, I hate him. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me. Now, I, I'm tempted to laugh at that. 
I know many other people that I've uh, seen as that passage has been read through the year almost chuckle at it because it's easy to, to make a mockery of such foolishness. Stuart Douglas said uh, that to reject a prophet is to reject the word of God. Now that is to reject a prophet of God. Let me make that clear. To reject a prophet of God, a true prophet of God, is to reject the true word of God. And yet to reject the true word of God is to reject God himself. Do you see the problem here? King Ahab says, I reject this prophet. I don't want to hear from him. I hate him. Why? He never prophesies anything good concerning me. Now, it would be easy to laugh at that, wouldn't it? To trivialize that, but it is not a trivial thing. Because here is a king who is rejecting the word and counsel of Almighty God in favor of what? Stooges who will come and tell him what he wants to hear. Tell him what his itching ears want to hear. Now, that is nothing new. We see it in the days of Ahab. We see it in our own day. We see it even in the words that Paul tells Timothy that in those last days we'll see the same thing, right? People will heap up for themselves false teachers. Why? Because they scratch their itching ears. But my friends, before we chuckle at old King Ahab, we need to recognize that this is what's going on in our churches today. We see churches everywhere that reject huge portions of the scriptures because they don't like what they say. I'm a little uncomfortable with this doctrine or that doctrine. I don't like this or I don't like that, so I just won't include it. In other words, I'm going to rewrite the Bible into a book I like. Those parts that God declares, the parts that he says that I don't like, we'll just ignore. Oh yeah, much like Ahab just ignored the true prophet of God in favor of people who will say exactly what he wants to hear. So my friends, before we mock, we need to remember that there are huge numbers of our churches that will not declare parts of the word of God because they don't like what it says. I don't read this chapter or that chapter because it doesn't say anything I like. Do not forget the judgment of God that fell upon Ahab. My friends, now it was for more than just a rejection of the word of God. But his rejection of the word of God signals his rejection of God, which signals all the evil that follows after. And my friends, you'll see it over and over again. The churches that begin to to reject part of the word of God will ultimately end up rejecting almost all of the word of God. And then you see stuff like I've heard from members of our own congregation at their former churches where it was no longer the word of God that was proclaimed, but whatever book the preacher was reading. The sermon will be focused around what book he was reading. Secular books oftentimes. Thank goodness they got out of those churches. My friends, we need to recognize that we're living in an age. Living in an age of a similar principle of people who reject the word of God and reject God himself in favor of a God made in their image. They reject the God uh, who is the creator, and instead worship a God of their own creation. So my friends, this battle is nothing new. Neither is living in an age of confusion. The Bible shows that when a people have been put to sleep with lies and moral confusion, judgment is almost always on the way. 
What's interesting, if you look at the text we're looking at today in Amos, there are several judgments prophesied. In fact, the first two judgments that are prophesied, there is an intercession by the prophet himself, and God relents of those disasters. But again, look at this chapter. And what we see is a basket of summer fruit. What is that image? Well, God asked him, what do you see, Prophet Amos? What do you see? A basket of summer fruit. In other words, a a basket a harvester would carry and bring the fruit off the vine, bring the fruit off the tree and put in that wicker basket that he would carry around, signifying that the fruit was ready to be eaten. It wasn't any longer uh, waiting to be ripened further. It was fully and perfectly ripe. In other words, God's judgment doesn't come early. It doesn't come late. God's judgment is falling at the perfectly ripe moment. And that's what he says, doesn't he? He says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Now, he is not signaling here the complete destruction of his people. This is a theme we see over and over again, even in the New Testament in Romans, where Paul speaks of a judgment falling upon the people of God, and not a complete uh, judgment. There is a remnant, Paul says, by the election of grace. In other words, God's purposes will continue forward through this judgment, but judgment has largely fallen upon the people. Similarly here, judgment is largely falling upon the nation. But God speaks here of his preserving purpose and keeping a portion of the people for a future work of God. My friends, we want to look now, if we're going to talk about judgment, we want to see a judgment that's difficult to detect. You know, one of the interesting things is we often talk about judgment and And in this case, you see that God words this as uh, he has relented in his mercy. There have been two judgments that that Amos has interceded on behalf of the people and God has relented of those disasters. So it's not inevitable, if you will, in a sense. God shows you, you will bring forth, if you will, to the fullness of the wrath that is uh, in store. You see this in the potter's house as Jeremiah speaks of uh, if any nation would return from their wickedness, then God will relent of the disaster that he sought to bring upon them. Again, the message here of Amos is, if this judgment falls, the people have fully deserved it. They've been given every chance in the mercy of God to, uh, to escape the judgment, and yet they have not. They just continued forth in their evil and sin. I want you to think about this, because the prophet speaks of disaster In these prophecies, God is bringing disaster upon the people. It's a strong word. And in fact, what does it bring to mind when we speak about the disaster of the judgment of God? People think of natural disasters, don't they? They think of lightning, thunder and lightning, and earthquakes and tsunamis and all of these huge things, tornadoes. Maybe even economic collapse. Maybe foreign invasion. There's an element of foreign invasion in this one, isn't there? But when people talk about the judgment of God, they get in their minds great waves sweeping over lands, just complete and utter destruction. And certainly that happens. Certainly we see evidence of that in the scriptures. And yet there is another form of judgment that the Bible speaks of that is far more difficult to detect. You see it in this passage, don't you? That one of the judgments of God is not just some sort of a natural disaster, but is actually the word of God 
being gone, being removed. What does he say here? You know this passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Now, we've read of judgments of famine, haven't we? Where uh, the land was, there was a famine in the land and there was no food to eat. He says it's not that kind of famine. It's not the kind of famine where you're thirsty, but there's nothing to drink. In fact, in this famine, there could be plenty of food. There could be plenty of drink. You could have wealth. You could have everything you need. But there's one thing you need that you cannot find, though you may not even look for it. And it's what you need most, the hearing of the word of the Lord. That's an imperceptible famine to many because they're not looking for the word of the Lord. Now, in this text, we see that there are some looking for it. They're running to and fro, and they're looking for the word of the Lord, but they cannot find it. I think in in this case, because we're dealing with the Old Testament, they're speaking of prophets. And you see in this text, Jehoshaphat asks, is there not a prophet of the Lord? There was still one, not a dozen to choose from. There was one prophet of the Lord left in Israel. Imagine Jehoshaphat asks, and there's none. In our own day, it might be a little different. Maybe it's not prophets. Maybe it's faithful churches that preach the gospel, faithful churches that stand for the truth of God's word. Maybe they're getting harder to find. Maybe there'll be a day where you can't find any, though you look. Maybe there'll be a day where the word of God uh, by government is outlawed. We know there are nations around the world where that's true today. It's hard to find the word of the Lord, the revelation of God. My friends, For some, they'll urgently look for it. But the reason this judgment is so imperceptive to others is they have no interest in it. They cannot find it, but they're not looking for it. It's gone, but they don't even know they're missing anything because they don't desire the truth. They don't desire the word and revelation of God. They don't desire the oracles of God. And so it's gone, and they don't even miss it. Because they don't know what they're missing. We spoke of Romans chapter 1 earlier. I think this is very much like the judgment we see there. Where Paul describes people chasing after their own foolishness and and evil and sins. And it says that God gives them over to them. In the Greek there's a little bit of an image of God giving a push that direction. That's what you want. Chase after it. What sadness would they feel? In their hardened hearts, they got exactly what they wanted. They chased after evil, and they got it. They chased after sin, and they got it. They chased after rebellion, and they got it. They don't even recognize the judgment that's fallen upon them. My friends, we need to recognize those judgments should terrify us. They're perfectly righteous. God is perfectly just in in doing it. But we should recognize the seriousness of that. My friends, we need to recognize that the sign for God's working in this way is not earthly disasters, but generally a decline toward foolishness. A decline toward foolishness. A leaving of sure foundations in order to chase after foolish desires. And brothers and sisters, the inability to discern what foolishness even looks like. You will talk to people that all of these things we've been speaking about today in our modern world, that, they will, that it's foolishness to us 
They act like it's complete wisdom. Complete wisdom. They cannot discern foolishness any longer. An age wherein good is called evil and evil called good. An age where even government can no longer discern what is right and what is wrong. Where governments sue institutions who do not provide a restroom to whatever people want to declare themselves that they identify with. I ask you, brothers and sisters, is this wisdom? Is this wisdom? Is this foolishness? Can we even tell anymore? As a people? As a society? I pray we can as a church. So, brothers and sisters, as we come to our third point today, I want us to see what the church's response should be. And the answer is it should remain steadfast in the truth. There's no mystery here. We should remain steadfast in the truth. It's a serious problem. There's no question. What is the answer? What is the responsibility of the church in days like this? It's not to be down. It's not to act defeated. We are not defeated. By the way, we're, we're on the winning side. So there's no reason to act down. No reason to be timid. We have to boldly proclaim the truth. We need to stand boldly for the truth and stand on the truth while it might still be heard. We should take seriously our responsibility to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to proclaim that gospel, to recognize that that's our duty, not whether or not people will hear it, but that we proclaim it. My friends, one thing I would remind us in such a time is that anti-Christian outlooks are nothing new. They have existed throughout the history of the world. They've existed certainly in the history of the church. You could say anti-Christian attitudes. Prior to that, you might say there were anti-religious attitudes. There was discrimination against the true one living God. But We need to recognize here in our own day that there have been long been outlooks that were anti-Christian. It's nothing new. It's amazing if you go back and read about the great institutions in American history before the Great Awakenings and the rejection of Christianity from the universities. Much stronger than anything we see today. So this is nothing new. So what shall we do? What is our approach moving forward? It's to stand on the word of God, to stand on the truth, to not give an inch. To recognize that if we see it being rejected, That's only the sign of God's judgment falling upon a country that no longer cares about the truth or a people that have rejected the truth. My friends, we need to recognize that that is our duty, to be steadfast for God's truth and His glory. Other generations have stood, and I want to close by saying this. If you think this is a new phenomenon, think about the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went... He stood not just against some, but a majority of people who had an anti-Christian outlook. Think about Paul in Thessalonica. Think about Paul in Philippi. Think about Paul in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus. Think about everywhere Paul went. Rome. Paul stood often alone, it would feel, against a tide of those who had an anti-Christian outlook. And yet what happened everywhere Paul went was that God was glorified, Christ was preached, the gospel was preached, and the church grew. 
So our outlook is not to have a defeated outlook or a timid outlook. It's to stand on truth and trust God to do the rest. That's all we can do anyway. Isn't that what Paul says? One planted, another watered. God gives the growth. We trust God. Our job is simply to proclaim the truth, to stand on the truth, to preach the gospel, to proclaim Christ, to lift up his name high. And God will do the rest. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we stand in a generation of confusion, that it will be said of us, as it was of generations before, that we stood on the truth, no matter how few we became, that we stood on the truth and proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Not for our glory, but for Christ's glory. Amen.